Welcome back to You're Always Fine, a space to show up for yourself and embrace the mess that lives underneath because let's be real, it's exhausting always being fine. So grab your headphones and allow yourself to listen, laugh, and even cry because you are not alone and we aren't always fine. And that's okay. October is Addiction Recovery Awareness Month. I know I speak for our whole team saying this month and every month, we are committed to breaking the stigma around substance use disorder and all mental illness. The best way we can do that is to continue to have the difficult, uncomfortable conversations about the taboo topics of mental health. And that is just what we have planned for you today. I'm your host, Christine, and today I am joined by guest host, Holly Wade, MALCPC. Holly has over 18 years of experience working in mental health and currently serves the mental health needs of healthcare professionals. Her expertise in the areas of healthcare and substance use disorder is why we asked her here today. With that, welcome, Holly. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks for having me today. So, Holly, can you give us a brief introduction on yourself and tell us, you know, your background and your work experience? Sure. Um, My name is Holly Wade, and I'm a licensed therapist in Maryland and Pennsylvania. And I've been in the field 20 years. I finished graduate school 20 years ago. Um, I'm also a licensed clinical art therapist and have a board certification in clinical art therapy. And I've worked in a very predominantly in inpatient settings for most of my career um, and in health systems for most of my career. And currently I work in Maryland's physician health program and their health professionals program. So can you tell us a little bit about like your specialty or kind of what your passion is within the field of counseling? Yeah. So for the last 10 years, my first love was community mental health. Um, I absolutely loved working in community health settings. Um, Inpatient psych was, I I, I would say that was my first love. And as my career progressed and I, you know, started working in larger health systems, my experience shifted from community mental health, which addresses mental health and substance abuse, um, to helping healthcare professionals get the care they need and um, making sure people were in the right level of care at the right level of time um, was what I did for 10 years. And that was mental health and substance abuse. And that was predominantly for healthcare professionals. And it kind of seamlessly transitioned to my work for the Maryland Physician Health Program and the um, Health Professionals Program program in the state of Maryland. Can you tell us a little bit more about that role specifically, um, what what your aim is, what your goal is, as well as how like substance use disorder uh, kind of like wraps into that role? Sure. Um, so the program I work for presently really works to help healthcare professionals get the care they need in a confidential way. Um, every state has them. And all health systems generally have agreements with them. So mental health and substance abuse, particularly substance abuse, I want to highlight today. Um, if you were, as a healthcare professional, to go to your employer and say, I think I have a problem, the American Dis- with Disabilities Act protects you and protects your job, and it protects your ability to work with a disease, because it is a disease. And I think people are 
petrified to get help sometimes yeah. because they are afraid of, yeah, they're completely afraid of it destroying their career. But what mm-hmm. most people don't know is when you have disease and you say, I need help and I need assistance, there's tons of resources built into every health system, not only to protect their employees, but to get them the help they need. And, you know, we work with health professional programs all over the United States. There's treatment facilities that specialize in healthcare professionals. And, um, you know, the aim of our program is to keep people healthy. And in general, you know, that could include something like monitoring afterwards, but, you know, which would look like drug testing afterwards. But the real thing that's the most important is people are getting help when they need it. Why do you think people don't know? I mean, I'm not even sure it was until like, honestly, this weekend, my sister was over with her husband and we were just talking about um, random drug tests at work. And he was like, you know, I bet you your job has something too that would protect you. Like, yeah. I was like really surprised that like, his company would like send him away for 30 days, save his job, but also like yeah. um yeah. pay for the facility. And I was just like, I maybe because like we had this episode coming up with you. And so I, right. I like top of my mind. But so why do you think so many people just don't know that like that's like a thing? Well, I think, you know, from one stance, employers don't do a great enough job when they're orienting people to um their protections, you know. Every orientation everywhere does include some kind of quickie on the American with Disabilities Act and do you need accommodation? But people don't really think of accommodations as needing help, right? It's, oh, I need a ramp to get in the building if I'm a wheelchair, in a wheelchair. If I'm using a motorized scooter, I have access to do my job within whatever supports I need. But I think when it's something you can't see and touch, you know, you don't look different. People who struggle with substance abuse and substance use disorders in general look just like the rest of us. And in in healthcare, I think there's we we are taught early in our careers muscle through it, right? Power through it. You're exhausted. The ER is getting slammed. You have to go do evaluations in an ER. You're going to muscle through it and, pull, and and push through it. Like I think healthcare professionals in general have a sense that. We have to keep going because it's it's this well-oiled machine, right? And if one of the parts breaks down, we're like, that's going to break down other parts of the system. So, you know, dy- healthcare is dynamic in a very different way because people's lives are at stake. So, you know, I think that what I have seen and observed over the years is pure fear. And, it, and sometimes people know they are misusing substances or they are burned out, they are leaning into alcohol more than they normally would, or other substances. There's, you know, lots of research that shows if you're in healthcare, you have access to other medications too. Like most addictions with an anesthesiology, you know, yes, some are alcoholism. Um, however, there's access to other drugs. So we also have friends with prescription pads, right? We all have doctors who are friends. Um, and, and the access is just there. And a lot of times we think we can handle it on our own and muscle it, muscle through it and power through it. And, and there breaks, people break down. There's, there's a breakdown point with everyone where they can't. Do you think that, um, 
healthcare and the unique like pain points that they go through, uh, you know, systems, the pressures, like, is there research that like shows that the substance abuse it, like is higher in this population? Like you would think that, right? But it's yeah. not. Wow. You would. You would think that. It definitely escalated during the pandemic. Okay. That makes sense. So like a lot of individuals who had their disease managed, um, there was a greater instance of relapse amongst healthcare professionals during the pandemic. And there was a Medscape study that referenced that um, recently. However, they are the same slice as the general population, which is which is amazing. And it really just goes to show we all have great coping mechanisms as, a, as human beings, right? We're not generally born with them. We learn them from our surroundings. They're models for us like people we love and care. But um, they're no more likely than the general public. However, they have admitted to use, like I think it's like 12 to 14% admitting to use to using a substance or being impaired at work at some point during a career. And that's the general population too. So the general population is 12 to 14% of all individuals have substance use disorders and it's no different for healthcare professionals. You're right. I, I just would have assumed, you know, just the high burnout rates, the, the high mm-hmm. pressure situations, right. like you said. Um, but I think it also I, goes to shows too, just like how prevalent it is. Like, you know, like yeah. it, and it just, it doesn't spare. <laughs> it doesn't. And and what I think that somehow is mind boggling, and I still struggle with this as, a, as someone who's worked with individuals my entire career, like I have, my family is touch there's not one family on the planet that's not touched by someone with substance use issues right um we would never be told we have a cancer diagnosis and say i'm gonna wait five years for treatment most most of the population there could be a fraction of the population i hate to overgeneralize but if you found out you had a disease you wouldn't say let me put a pin in that because i think i can beat it without treatment we would never do that right and no doctor would say to their patient okay you're drinking a gallon of whiskey a day, you try and handle that on your own. Because there's so many risks that could go with that. You know, when someone detoxes from alcohol, they could have delirium tremens, they can have psychosis, all these highly dangerous things like seizures. So um, it's never something people should try and muscle through on their own. And, and, and death happens when people try and detox themselves from alcohol. They die. They can die. And I think one of the things you said that really resonates with me is just like, back to like this invisible type of disease or struggle. Like we would never mm-hmm. tell someone not to take their diabetes medication or not to ask for right. accommodation around right. like diabetes. Yeah. But yet like this is something, right, that has like more of a shame element around it. Yeah, very much so. And, you know, I feel like mental health did too until the yeah. pandemic. You know, you're a social worker also. You know, we've worked in a field where like, we were like the disregarded stepchild of healthcare, where yeah. only really oh with God. the pandemic, it is, it's true. Um, you know, only with the pandemic were people like, oh, this is real. Because people who maybe were able, did have really good ego strength and can keep it together for a while, all of a sudden couldn't. Yeah. Because we were inundated with, with death. Like humans are not built to withstand deaths the way people were dying in the beginning of the pandemics. And different parts of our country were hit harder than others. But, you know, we're not built to withstand that as as humans. We're just not. So it's really, you know, 
in a way you would never want to say a pandemic is a blessing, but we can look for the silver lining and everything is it's highlighting things that are very real. And, you know, so like the program I work for, it's been around for 45 years. It started in the 1970s with doctors saying we have colleagues that need help. And now, you know, many states are like Maryland. It expands to all healthcare professions. Um, and they can, you know, some of the boards have their own programs, but um, like nursing boards in Maryland mm-hmm. have their own program. However, we've gotten nurse practitioners and PAs through our, our program when it's confidential and they don't want it to be public. So it's it's just really important that people get help. I agree. Do you think that there's still it's like your program is seen as a punishment or as help? Because like I could I could see it being not that you guys do yeah. anything to make it, but like no, I, no, no, yeah. You know, like I think sometimes like even when you admit you like it's help, it it can feel punitive. Um, it really can. And so like in our program, we have relationships with all the larger health systems. So. People can be voluntold to come. Like, we really think you need help. Um, we see you trying. It's time. You need the help. Um, and some people come to us too, but that, you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes into remaining sober and healthcare professional programs work because there's in general five years of monitoring, like three to five years. Allied health professionals, they generally monitor for three and doctors and PAs and therapists generally get five years of monitoring. Um, and and that's random drug screens. And lots of times employers will pay for them, which most people don't know. Like they can just have it done while they're at work. They go to OC, they get selected, they go to OC Health and they have a drug test that day. And people come in kicking and screaming even when they self-refer. And and think about it because you're facing something and now you have to process all the feelings you have around it whether it's your own guilt and shame or feeling like I inherited this and I didn't ask for it and I'm mad and I didn't want it. And that's the same process that anyone with any disease goes through, right? There's no, the anger, so there's it's shame. It's so true. I mean, I can speak just like I have a rare disease and like I feel like everything you're saying hits home for yeah. like that exact thing, like processing that, you know. And- yeah, and alcohol is so normalized. And like, I, I'm using alcohol as an example. In some states, it's cannabis. Like, we, if you go out to a party and you're not having, you're not drinking that night, people will be like, oh, you're not drinking. We would never say to someone, oh, you're not smoking cigarettes. Oh, you're not smoking a joint. Like, it's just yeah, alcohol has become so normalized that. culturally. It's It's like very much part of our culture as we live and breathe in a day in and day out basis. Like, my mother's family was from Italy and owned wineries in Italy and made wine. So like wine was something that was always around, you know, like most of many cultures you're raised with some kind of aperitif or, you know, drink or, you know, in South America, there, there's some, you know, people chew on the cocoa plant for altitude sickness. So it's it's not like unique to our culture, but it's it's just something that's seen as quite normal. Um, you know, in the rise of psychedelics, we're not hearing people going, Oh, you don't do ketamine at home, you know, with Mindbloom or one of those apps. Um, because that's still stigmatized. But the truth is, in healthcare, people have access to medications that are that are addictive. They're addictive. You know, they have access to medications that 
are used scientifically with microdosing that people try it on themselves too. So it's. Do you think that's one of the unique kind of like things about healthcare that you don't see in other substance abuse um, populations? uh, Yes. Yeah. That they can, they have so much access. But it, like, it makes sense. Like, I have been in times yeah. where I couldn't get access to my medication. And, like, you know what? Like, if I had a pad, I can't. Like, I've been in that much pain where it's, like, y- you know, I could have seen myself in those, like, very dark moments. And that's no different than I think, right? Like, your why doesn't really change, yeah. like, crossing that line, right? Because, like, everyone's right. why feels very real to them. Yeah, it does. And, you know, when you are, let's say you have unmanaged depression, right? And you're a resident. A lot of the the issues start in residency and you are overwhelmed, but yet you're an anesthesiologist. So you just decide, I'm going to try and and microdose. You have access. You have access to things that are are used commonly in anesthesia or in other experimental procedures. We all have access. Well, I don't because I don't prescribe, but you know, I have access to people with those things. So if if someone is that desperate, they may extend that. And and there is some research to support that healthcare professionals use different things in the general population. Like they're more likely to be using discarded fentanyl and discarded, you know, ketamine and versed and propofol, like things that are quite powerful. Um, that's why you see a lot of health systems really tightening up on on Pixis systems, you know, it's common in healthcare. Nurse practitioners, um, the same, you know, there, there have been many cases over the years where people are writing their own scripts or writing them to a family member and getting them filled for a like quote unquote family member, but it's really that. Because when you are, when you, when the physical dependence is there and the disease is active, it's no different than someone on the street saying, I'm going to go buy a pill that they're telling me is this in the hopes that it really is that. They know logically that may not be, you know, um, Adderall or fentanyl that they're buying on the street, but they're taking the risk because their body is withdrawing and they are dependent. So, yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's so funny. In, in school, one of the things like that we were taught very early on was, you know, know what you can't, like, what is your trigger points? Are, like, what you can't yeah. kind of, I, I forget the word, like, basically just, like, know where you can't go, essentially, right? Yeah. And for me, substance yeah. abuse, just with, like, my family's, like, history was somewhere, like, that was just automatically, like, just difficult for me. And is it very hard for me to draw those like lines, you know, and yeah. you know, to make sure parallel process countertransference, all that stuff isn't occurring. Right. Um, what do you think? Like, how, what do you think it is like that drew you? Like, you know, like I don't think the work is for everyone. No, so it's not for everyone. And I can honestly say, in graduate school, I got placed at a drug rehab. It was called the Oxygen Center. It was on Long Island. Um, I'm originally from New York. And I'm from New I, York. I, I love New York, York. actually. <laughs> New York. And um, so I was working in my inter- clinical internship for and doing my thesis research at a substance abuse facility. And that's what I wrote my thesis on. And I really, you know, I knew I had family members like in my extended family who struggled and had been in treatment. And what I realized is most of them 
had some kind of, it began innocently. Like I never met one person who woke up and said, I'm going to go out and buy heroin on the street and just become a heroin addict. Cause what the hell? Like, sorry. I hope that's okay to say, but I, I, I have never met one person, you know? Um, and the, ad- I was working with adolescents at the time. The adolescents had, tr- they had pain, deep emotional pain that led them to their first exposure. And then dependence formed and they all had backgrounds of it, but we've culturally people have covered it up so many generations and generations, right? There's always just, oh, that's Uncle Charlie who passed out on the couch. You know, it's been covered up because it's uncomfortable and mental health's uncomfortable. And and like you said, Christine, like we all have those areas that were like, "Mm -mm, not for me. Like I, I can't do it. Um, and most of us have been in therapy. My my graduate program encouraged us to be in therapy. And I remember fighting it. And it was like the best thing I ever did. I was Me like, too. Oh, NYU was why. like, you can't yeah. graduate unless you do. And it yeah. was the biggest blessing. Yeah, it really was. It really was. And and it's interesting because like it was it was something that I didn't have a lot of exposure to until my internship. And then I started researching and I love research and I'm a little bit of a research nerd. But the more and more I found was like so many of these people had things that they never asked for to happen to them. And no one asks for genetics to load them with something. And you never know until the exposure, right? Yeah. So you don't know you're an alcoholic until you, you're exposed to alcohol and then you can't stop drinking. Um and a lot of people have really amazing coping skills and we're taught amazing coping skills. And it's not till, you know, something like a pandemic happens and they realize they're just drinking a little more. They had more downtime. The work they were doing wasn't allowing them into the job some days. Their hours were cut back. They had to dress like they were going into a hazmat situation, you know, which looked like something out of ET with the white suits and I mean, if, if anyone ended up in the hospital at all during the pandemic, you know that you kind of like swabbed like something out of the, what's that movie with Ebola and their um, outbreak, <laughs> like movie outbreak, you know, when people come in in suits and would swab you first. And it was really, you know, an experience that people's coping lack, like the, they lapse. Your coping skills it broke lapse. down. Yeah. And it broke down and people comforted you find that way to comfort yourself. And so for some people, they didn't realize alcohol was an issue for them because it's not something they engaged in with any regularity. So they didn't realize they had a dependence or a predisposition to a dependence. I, one thing you said that I, I constantly say to a lot of my clients for different situations, but I think it really rings true here too. Like no one, given the, if you get to start at the outcome, right? And the outcome mm-hmm. is like, I'm going to be an alcoholic. I'm going to hit rock bottom. I, I'm going to lose my family, this, right? Like, yeah. who would choose that for themselves, right? Like, no one. And, and that's exactly, no one would choose the, like, the steps that, like, get to the outcome, you know? And so right. this isn't a choice, you know, like, that people aren't making, in, from, in my experience, like, I think people forget, like, and I think a younger version of myself when that was really hard for me as like a young practitioner, right? Like 
you know, I look back at baby me. I think this version of myself, you know, can could have handled substance abuse much differently, right? Yeah. But like, that's kind of not yeah. how your, your career goes. But in the beginning, like, I really struggled because of my personal relationships. Like, well, you chose that instead of us, right? Like, you could have lived, but you didn't. Um, yeah. And I think it's 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 a hard thing for a, a lot of society to get over. They see that it's like a, and AA uses like a phrase, like basically it's like a, a moral character flaw, but it's it's not a character flaw. It's a disease, and and I I think that people have to remember, like, you know, they may have chosen to engage socially and be exposed to something. Sometimes people's first exposure is the dentist, and they. Years ago, in the 90s and the 80s, they were writing out opiates all the time. I got my wisdom teeth out. I think they gave me like codeine and all this other stuff. I mean, for me, I'm actually like biologically allergic to those things. So I end up with a rash and anaphylaxis and all sorts of terrible stuff. So, I mean, that your natural my consequences are different. Um, but I definitely think that people think people always choose the exposure because you so we live in a society where alcohol is so normal and someone starts by having a glass of wine here and there and you don't want the bottle to go bad so you have another and you don't know you you're like loaded with the predisposition you don't choose it you may have exposed yourself intentionally or unintentionally but it's it's not a choice and I think it, it is hard, but it's the same reason mental health is hard, right? You can't see it. You can't touch it. Yeah. You can't, you can't feel it. It's not a mass. And society's not you. good with him. Yeah. Society's not good with things that we can't see. I mean, but it always makes me laugh, right? Because like we found a way for cancer, but really, right? Chemo makes someone look like a cancer patient. Cancer yeah. is just the replication of your, of your proteins. You know what I mean? Like right. you can't see but cancer. That's not editing out. Right. You know, it, you can't see cancer happening, right? But like chemo makes you, you lose your hair and, and like, right? And that makes it tangible. Right. But um, these these things that are, like you said, happening just like all mental health are really, really hard. Um, And I think that, you know, that's why it was so important for us, you know, during October is, you know, Substance Abuse Awareness Month. And we're, you know, really trying to get the message out because there's so many misconceptions um, I know we just talked about a few, but are there any other misconceptions, Holly, that you would like to point out? Um, I mean, you gave a oh, great tip right in the beginning about. Yeah. Well, one of the things I want to say is like, because you need help does not mean you were messed up or there was something wrong with you. Yes. I have had more people sit in my office for assessments and say, wow, I must be really messed up. And I'm like, you're human. You're human. You're human. We all have genetic flaws. We might know some of them now. We might know some of them in, in 20 or 30 years. Like, we don't know what our genetic flaws are until they express. We are human and flawed. We, you know, there is no, like, quote unquote, perfect human specimen because we are vulnerable to disease. And, you know, genetics play a, a huge, huge, huge role in that. And when I people sit in my office, I'm like, Normal people, healthy people go to therapy and get help. Normal people, healthy people deal with substance use. And I had like a colleague who, he, it's a physician who is someone I tremendously respect. And he said once, it's not, there's nothing wrong with being an alcoholic. There's nothing wrong with being an alcoholic. There's everything wrong with being an alcoholic that's drinking. 
but there's nothing wrong with being an alcoholic. Oh, I like that. And I really, like, it struck me, and it, I really just was like, and I said to him, I'm going to use that phrase, like, just, you know, I'm using that with everyone who fills my office. <laughs> because I think it, 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 the stigma is what we put on ourselves and what society puts on us, yeah. right? And, and people have shame over, they feel like they must be bad because they, quote unquote, allowed some, you know, a substance mm-hmm. to take over. But they didn't allow it. And it's really shifting that mindset that we have to really work on as, as a society. Um, and you're not messed up or flawed or wrong or bad human because you struggle with substance use issues. I mean, it, it's just nothing about your character. Oof, I, those, those hit hard. And I love just like the conviction in which like you have those like ready to dispel, like pew, 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 <laughs> dispelling the stigma. I, I love it. So Holly, one last question for you. Um, You know, maybe you're not the one that's struggling with the substance, but maybe you have a friend or a family member. What what is your kind of your best advice or a tool or um, a tip you can give them on how how they can support their loved ones? You know, I think that supporting your loved ones comes with educating yourself. And that that sounds like a really... Like, how am I helping someone if I'm focusing on learning? Um, as you learn and you focus on learning, you're going to learn how to set the right boundaries. So you're giving a safety net for your loved one, but you're not enabling behaviors as they, as they fight the disease. Um, just like you wouldn't allow a diabetic to throw their insulin out, you're not going to you're going to have a safety net in place for that. And you're going to have a safety net in place to have your loved one go to treatment. And and setting boundaries is a really important, important part of being supportive to your loved ones. Boundaries are healthy. They're good. They're structure. And it helps people find their own motivation for getting well because it's scary. It's very scary to get well. That is what I hear the most. It is scary because what am I going to do? Um, so being kind of that supportive structure around, like if you kind of think of like when you're building a house, there's scaffolding and stuff, right? There's all these pieces around a structure being built. Educating yourself is as, as the, as a loved one is saying, okay, I may not be the person to give to address this with them but I'm going to find someone who is. Um, If you're being harmed by someone who is kind of in the throngs of the disease, it's setting the boundaries to keep you all safe. It keeps them safe in jail. It keeps you safe physically. And structure and boundaries are really important. And working with healthcare professionals to understand it, treatment centers will talk to families for free. Mm. You do not have to pay to talk to a treatment center. People will give you your their phone numbers. You can reach out. And, um, you know, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Administration, SAMHSA online, has lots of guides. NIH health guides. NIDA, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, has guides on how to talk to family members. There's amazing resources out there. But education is the key. And really the key to, to having success moving forward. Even when it's yourself, like if it's, Someone who says they need help, knowing maybe they need monitoring 
it might feel like punishment having to get drug tested, but maybe that's accountability they need. I like to that. remember to to remember to like quote unquote take the medicine, like do the work. If you are on meds, take a good your mindset. Sh- sh- that is a great mind shift. I think change like take away the punishment and and consider it accountability. Like that's I mm-hmm. love that, Holly. Right. I mean, if a diabetic went into a diabetic coma because they keep eating, you know, copious amounts of sugar and have a blood sugar of 500, you know, we would say you cannot continue to do this. And tell yourself, yeah, you're going to kill yourself or this is how we can help you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's no different, but education is key. And we educate for everything. Like you go to the hospital, you get checked in, they send you a packet when you go home with education. Um, I remember that when I had my son. I remember that when he had his appendix out. Like we got this whole thing about recovery and aftercare. Yeah. Um, and I, I think we have to do a better job, but, you know, education and understanding like the disease process is, is, is key. Holly, thank you so much for being here with us and sharing your expertise. I know I love working with you. I know we love working with MedKai and um, the work you guys are doing there. Again, just thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. And I love um, Cabana, which is why I got involved. I love helping healthcare professionals. I'm really pretty passionate about it. If you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and leave us a review. We love hearing from you guys, and it means the world to our small podcast team. Lauren and I will be back next week for another brand new episode of You're Always Fine. Until then, mind your health. Seriously, you're fine. You're fine because you have the power to access your place of peace anytime you need it. However, if you get stuck, we're right at the palm of your hand to help. Check out our show notes for this week's source list, recommended content, and Cabana live group schedule. We'll catch you next week for a brand new episode of You're Always Fine. The team at Cabana has found your reset button. The answer, Cabana Pods, acoustic soundproof booths with immersive micro-vacations proven to boost your mood in just five minutes. To learn more about Cabana Pods, visit www.evenhealth.com slash pods.